Thank you very much, everyone. Nick's right, it was 12 years ago this month that a handful of Christians from other places and other churches started gathering in Capitol Hill in a studio apartment. A studio apartment that was so expensive at the time, the two residents shared a bed, even though they weren't family. Um, and, uh, and the people who wanted to pray for this neighborhood would circle and look for parking down where Denny meets Olive for 35 minutes, delaying our weekly prayer meeting every week. Um, and so, so it's, it's a good time for me to take a step back and get some perspective. You know, 12 years means that we're just about to enter the teenage years of the church, and so there's probably some puberty to come, uh, and it's good to take a step back. But, but I'm very excited to have the opportunity to, um, to open the word with you guys one last time before I go on break, and I'm excited for the particular passage we have um, on the menu today. And so, yeah, open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to remind you again that at this portion in Paul's letter to this church in Ephesus, he's been contrasting, um, looking at um, the things that we need to put off and the things that we need to put on. Or he's been saying, to put it differently, no longer walk this way, but instead walk that way. And so we've seen in this series, Learning How to Walk, um, a call to walk in love, uh, a call to walk as light, a call to walk in wisdom. And this morning we're going to look at a call to walk in the Spirit. And um, we have some heavy lifting to do this morning, so we're just, we're just going to read the passage together to get the ball rolling right off the beginning. Here we are in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. God, this morning we come in confidence, in confidence that we will hear you because this is your word, which was composed through the men you had called by your Holy Spirit. And because you promised to send that same spirit to guide us in all truth. And so would you instruct us this morning, and especially as we look again, as Ephesians has helped us to do over and over it, the big picture of what you've called us to as individuals who know and follow Jesus and as his body, the church. I pray, God, that you would instruct us in these ways and that you would empower us to live them out by this Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't find the word walk here as we have found in the last few passages, but we do find the same contrast here it's pretty simple. It's do not be drunk, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the first thing that we need to hit here is who is the Holy Spirit? And I, I think it's especially important to ask that question because when we say things like filled with the Spirit, we sometimes don't make a strong enough distinction between like Star Wars and the Force. Okay. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, we're not talking about a force or an entity or merely a power. We're talking about a person. Okay. When Paul here references walking in the Spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person, along with the Father and the Son, that make up the triune God. And it's also important to realize that uh, this is not the first time the Spirit has been mentioned in the book of Ephesians. Now, I'm going to suggest to you um, a, maybe a slightly different reading of this passage than you might be familiar with. If you've grown up in the church, especially if you come from church traditions that are more Pentecostal or charismatic or have a regular habit of talking about the Holy Spirit, this verse, be filled with the Spirit, is, is one you know. 
It's, it's one we talk about all the time. And I'll tell you honestly, I regularly pray that God would fill me afresh with his spirit. If you've heard us pray before service, I regularly pray that God would fill us as a church with his spirit. And I think that's right and proper. Not only that, but if you read through the book of Acts, you will find this language on every page. Right, And so on the day of Pentecost, these people are waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They're praying, and the Spirit came upon them. And then Peter stands up after all these people are speaking in languages they don't know. He stands up and he addresses the crowd, and what does it say? And Peter, being filled with the Spirit, said. Okay. And Paul is doing ministry uh, in, in a particular nation, and he's talking with the proconsul, and that proconsul has a magician as a right-hand man, like Jafar in Aladdin, right? And that guy starts to resist, and Paul, being full of the Holy Spirit, rebukes the man and says, be blind in the name of Jesus, and he loses his sight, okay? In Acts chapter 4, the church is experiencing great persecution, and they pray that God would give them boldness in the midst of it, and what does it say? And the house was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit, okay? Because of that cadence, because of that consistent Um, thing, we tend to read this passage the same way. And so we go, all right, we, to live the Christian life, need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and the call here is a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the command here is in the continuous present tense. Paul is not telling us to do something once, but regularly, consistently, all the time. Be consistently filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is an imperative. It is a command. This is something Paul is telling us to do. But one last little note on it. It's also a passive command. Do you see that? It doesn't say fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. It says be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? There's a part of that you can't do. That's what makes it passive. As much as it's a command, it's something that happens to you. Okay? However... With all of these things being on the table, I want to suggest to you that there is uh, a better way to read this passage as merely a reference to our dependence as individuals on God's empowerment for regular Christian life. I want to suggest instead that the idea here is a big picture idea about what God is doing through the Holy Spirit and calling you to participate in. Let me say it again, because you're going to need that anchor while we go off-roading a little bit before we come back and pull things together. This passage is a call in the big picture to participate with what the Holy Spirit is doing in God's great plan for humanity. Okay. Now, with that being said, let me show you what I'm talking about. See, here's the thing that made me suspicious from the beginning. Two things about this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. First off, if you were a reader of New Testament Greek, I know many of you aren't, that's fine, but if you were to read it, you'd know that this word fulfilled is not the same word that Luke uses in Acts fulfilled. It's also not the same grammatical construction. Every other time we uh, find it, and I know I'm putting on my spectacles here and I'm pushing them right up my nose, but this sounds, uh, you know, this, I got to talk grammar for a second. Every other time we find this construction of being filled with the Spirit, it's in the genitive, okay? Which in in this case just means that it's talking about contents. What are you filled with? The Spirit. But here it's in the dative, okay? It's the only place in the New Testament where it's in the dative. Then there's this. Like I told you, Ephesians is about big picture. In fact, let's look at the big picture going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 10. In fact, let's pick up verse 9. Here's what God is doing. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, how much of that language involves big picture? What is God's purpose? What is his plan? What is his will? What is the revelation? That would be the opposite of the word mystery there. Okay, what is the big picture? What is God doing? What is it? It says, a plan to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, if you've been with us in our study of Ephesians, we've already talked about this. This is what God is doing in sending Jesus as Savior and Lord. He is reconnecting all of humanity and more than that. It says not just on earth, but in heaven. He's reconnecting all things 
through Jesus Christ as king. Okay? And Paul builds on this as he prays at the end of this chapter. And so notice what he says here. It says, verse 20, he's talking about power here. He says, the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Remember, big picture language, right? What do we have left to talk about once Paul has added all those modifiers? Nothing. If you're a king, you're under this. If you're now or then, you're under this. If you are in heaven or on earth, you're under this. It's big, it's broad. And what does he say? He says, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And then notice the language here, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, two things I want you to hold on for later. One, how is God going to unite all things to Christ? One of two ways. Some of them are going to become part of his body. Others are going to be under his foot. Okay? Do you see that? There's, a, there's an organization here, but not an equal organization. Some are part of the body, and some of them are under the rule of Christ, but they are all connected. And then notice that language of fullness. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, the, the reason why we need to keep this in mind in Ephesians chapter 5 is because this idea of filling, this idea of fullness is an emphatic concept in Ephesians, one that he returns to over and over again. In fact, let us, uh, let us look at how it returns again at the end of chapter 2. Okay. Again, we have purpose language here. And so he's speaking to you as Gentile believers, non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 2, So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now listen, this is important. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you were also being built together into a dwelling place for God by who? By the Spirit. Okay. Now, do you see the relationship between the fullness and the filling and the picture that Paul paints here? It's the picture of a temple. What is the purpose of a temple? If you read the Old Testament and the temple or the tabernacle is dedicated, what happens next? God fills it with his presence. Solomon rebuilds the temple. It's big. It's beautiful. He prays. The priests uh, uh, start worshiping the Lord, and the temple is filled with his presence. In the biblical idea, the temple is the place where you go to meet with God. And now Paul says God is doing that on earth now, but not in Jerusalem, and not in brick and mortar, but across the world in the body of Christ as a spiritual temple. But what is the goal? that we would be filled with the presence of God, okay? Which is why in chapter 3, when Paul again returns to praying for the church, he prays this. So verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you all being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's that language again, filling language, okay? And so again, picture a temple, and he says, God's building you into a temple, so my prayer for you is that you would be built in such a way that you would be full of God's presence, okay? What I'm suggesting to you this morning is this is God's endgame. This is what he's doing in Jesus Christ. This is why we are a church, why, God, why doesn't God just preach the gospel and then send people straight to heaven when they receive him? Because he's building the temple. And the temple is happening here. It's happening now. It's being built this morning. Okay? And who is in charge of the project? Who's on site as foreman? The Holy Spirit. Right? That's what we saw at the end of chapter 2. Right? And you are being joined into a temple for the presence of God by the Holy Spirit. So, 
What I am suggesting to you this morning, it is those ideas that are in the back of Paul's mind when we get back to verse 18. And let's read it again together. Chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What is the contrast here? Don't do this. Instead, do that. Okay? He talks here about drunkenness, and he says drunkenness is the wrong direction. Drunkenness is regularly in the New Testament identified with the old man of where we came from. Now, you may not have alcohol or or substances in your background before you came to Christ. He's not saying that this is everybody, but he's making a contrast here as a foil, okay? A foil in the literary sense, okay? If you are telling a story and you have a protagonist and you use another character out of contrast to show you who the protagonist really is to draw out the best of his character, that's a foil. Okay. In this, uh, and it comes from, it comes from the uh, realm of um, gems and jewelry. You see, in earlier times, to make a diamond shine more brightly, they would back it with thin metal foil. Okay. And so it's, it's an idea of contrast to make clear. Here, don't be drunk with wine is a contrast, and he says the reason we shouldn't is because it's debauchery. Or your translation might say um, prodigality, or it might say which is excess. Um, The word here is hard to nail down because there's its kind of original basic meaning and then the way that it was used broadly across culture to say things, okay? But the idea of it is that it is wasted. Drunkenness is a waste. It's unproductive. In fact, the word here in its original means not saved, as far as we can tell. Okay? And so the idea of waste is what you didn't hold on to, what you didn't save. And it may even be here because saved is... Bible language, right? Saved is Christian language. It may even be here that Paul is making a play on words contrast. He's saying drunkenness isn't saved behavior. But he's saying more than that. He's saying you have a work to do, a walk to walk in, and he, as a foil, contrasts it with drunkenness, which is a waste. Okay. He, effectively, this is what Paul is trying to point to this morning. He's calling us not to waste our lives. Okay? And so how do we do that? It says we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, like I said, this is dative, not genitive, and it's technically filled in the Spirit. If we were just going to be a word-for-word, literal translation, there's a little dative particle here, Uh, that we would in English pronounce as N, and it means in, okay? But here is, again, what I'm suggesting to you, big picture here. It's not that Paul is speaking to us as individuals and saying, hey, you can't live the Christian life without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead, he's calling us to participate in what the Spirit is doing, He's calling us to come alongside the Spirit. And again, this is something that Paul has already hinted at in the last chapter, and this is how he says it. In the midst of telling us how to love one another and to not gossip about one another and to not fight with one another, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, why would the Spirit be bothered by the way you treat other Christians? Because you were tearing down what he's building, okay? Some of you had little brothers, And some of you know that when little brothers are around projects that you're building out of Legos, there's danger. And if they come in and they dismantle what you put all that time into, you were grieved. And I know as a six-year-old you didn't run to mom and dad say, I'm very grieved by my younger brother right now, but you were grieved. That's the point. The Spirit has a job to do. He's invited you and given you a job to do in the building of the temple. You're not merely one of the stones, you're one of the workers in what God is doing. And I would suggest to you here that when Paul says, be filled in the Holy Spirit, he's saying the Holy Spirit is the filling one. 
He's the one doing the work of filling. And so you need to participate. You need to work. Why do I say that? Because of what Paul says next. Look at chapter 5 again, and then look at how he goes on here in verse 19. Notice that verse 19 doesn't begin a new sentence. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns. Okay, and then he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, where do we find the period in that sentence? At best, we find it at the end of verse 21. Actually, we don't. He keeps going. We're not going to. But I want you to notice that there are five particular words that all sound the same and are part of the same syntax that follow this idea, and they are what we call participles. They're ing verbs, okay? And so we have addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, and submitting, okay? In Greek grammar, those are directly tied to and explained by the imperative that precedes it. So be filled with the Spirit, addressing, singing, making melodies. There's a relationship there. Paul's not saying, I have six things for you to do. First, be filled. Then address one another. Then do this. There's some sort of relationship here. And oftentimes, people have read this and said, well, since we need to be filled with the Spirit, the results of being filled with the Spirit will be these things. And so what this says is, hey, if you just take the time to get filled the consequence will be you'll be the type of person who sings songs to the Lord and to one another. You'll be the type of person who gives thanks. And you'll be the type of person who is equipped to submit to one another. Okay. But that would be super rare. Of all the uh, structures we have that are similar to this in the New Testament, like the Great Commission. The Great Commission is this, okay? Go into all the world and make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Imperative followed by participles. And we could point to a ton of other examples. In not one other example is it cause, result, effect. Not one. What I would suggest to you is that it's better to read these as attending circumstances. In other words, if we need a connective little tiny word to tie these together, a best, the best way to read this is be filled with the Spirit by singing and making melody. Okay. Now I want to be clear here. Again, what I'm not saying is, hey, if you want to experience more of God in your life, hey, if you want to be fuller of the Spirit, the way you do that is by worshiping and giving thanks and submitting to one another. Paul is not saying here, do these things and this will be the result. He's saying the Spirit is doing these things. And then he explains what the things are. Okay, so let me put it one last way. The Spirit's job is to build the temple. Paul says, work with the Spirit in building the temple, and then he describes how the temple is built. See what I'm saying? Okay. Now this is huge. It's significant. And it's also in tune with what Paul has been saying since the beginning of chapter 4. He's basically, since chapter 4, verse 1, been talking about what you've probably heard me call the one another's. The New Testament's primary emphasis on how to be a Christian is summed up in a whole bunch of one another's. Love one another. Pray for one another. Forgive one another. Here we get submit to one another. Sing songs to one another. Okay? In other words, God has created a new community in Jesus Christ, and that community is a body that is self-building. And it builds as the whole body builds itself up in love. That's what he says in chapter 4. Okay. Now here's the thing. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that here God kind of pulls open the hood and gives you an inside look to how the body grows. Okay. Paul, Paul, quite contrary, how does the body grow? by singing songs and spiritual songs, by giving thanks and submitting to one another. Now, this list isn't exhaustive. 
but it is significant. And it's also practical. Have you ever asked yourself, why do we sing at church? Where else do you sing? What other organization is a part of your life where you do this? And when you find out that other organizations do do this, are you creeped out? Right? If you go over for dinner and a family sings songs around the table, you know, does it bother you? Is there, a comp- is there something comparison, some comparison being made between church and summer camp? Right? Why is singing so significant? But notice what Paul says. In fact, again, th- this is uh, my friend Gary, who's a professor down at Western Seminary. He says that you always need to read the Bible and pay attention to the speed bumps. If you hit something, pull over. Okay? I would suggest there's a really good speed bump in this passage. Notice again what he says in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why is that surprising? Because who do we sing to? When we praise, who do we praise? We praise God. And and Paul's going to say the same thing. Look at what he says next. He says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And they run parallel here. Sing songs to one another. Sing songs to the Lord. It's one and the same thing. But he starts with the one another. Have you ever thought about that? Why does it matter? Why does Paul want you to sing when we are gathered together? So that you would hear one another singing. Sing these songs to one another. Okay. Does that mean that we should design worship to be a duet and make eye contact? No. His point is much more simple than that. His point is that when Christian songs are well written, they tell us who God is and what he has done. Okay? And when we sing them, everybody else is listening in and they are hearing the truth proclaimed, hopefully in key. Okay? When we sing songs... We not only sing them to God, but we sing them to one another because we need to remember who God is. We need to remember that the things that are coming out of our mouth are real, and you all know how capable you are of saying things without thought, of singing things without thought. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who wandered his way into a prayer meeting after listening extensively to the Beatles and was singing under his breath without realizing it, why don't we do it in the road? Which is not prayer meeting appropriate. That was not a conscious thing. He wasn't putting a lot of thought into it, right? But when we hear, we capture our brains. Paul calls us to sing songs here to one another because it builds the temple. And is that surprising? That there's a correlation, a relationship between a temple and worship? (laughs) Not at all right? In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that their tabernacle was a place where there were musicians and where there was singing. Okay. Now, notice he uses a couple of different words here, and it's worth pausing to notice them. He says, addressing another, one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay. Now, I don't think Paul is trying to give us particular and defined and separate categories, I don't think this list is exhaustive, uh, but I do think it's worth noticing th- some things. First off, he says psalms, and very clearly for you know, a Jewish man who was raised under the feet of a famous rabbi and was a participant in the Sanhedrin like Paul was, when he says psalms, what is he thinking of? He's thinking of the book in the Old Testament, the one that we read from this morning, the one we read from every uh, Sunday, the one that is best identified as the prayers and songs of the people of Israel. And so it's no surprise here that Paul says one of the things we should sing to each other are the songs of Scripture. Okay? Because we need those truths. And one of the things that I love about the Psalms is the experience of those who wrote them is so broad we find ourselves in them. Okay? And so we hear David say, why are you cast down, O my soul? And we go, oh, my soul is cast down too. And we hear the psalmist say, and when I looked at how the evil were succeeding and enjoying a good life and experiencing health, and even when they die, they die silently in their sleep surrounded by their loved ones, I almost stumbled. And we go, I almost stumbled too. 
And we hear, the enemy is closing in, and I'm feeling closed in, I need a deliverer. And we go, so do we. And so Paul says we should take those songs and we should sing them to one another. My mom became a Christian late in life, and she was shocked to discover that a song she'd known her whole life was actually just a Bible passage, right? She's a child of the 60s, so to every season, turn, 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 right? When she realized that was Bible, she was surprised, okay? And you'll have that experience when we sing in church. You'll be opening your Bible to the Psalms, and you're like, oh, I know this song. That's good. But the next one, he says, is hymns. And that one we have to do a little bit of extra work because here's the thing. You hear him, you think church music, don't you? And this is why. We've taken the language of the Bible here, but hymnos, the Greek word that's here, doesn't refer to church music. It refers to Greek music. Okay? It is a secular term for the songs of the culture that made up the Roman Empire very broadly. Okay? And so when they, you know, tuned in on Greek radio, it was to hear the top hymns of the day, okay? Now, why is that significant? Because when we put it next to Psalms, Paul is saying that there is a value in Bible songs and that there is a value in Gentile songs. Now, I'm not saying that we should start to sing, you know, ACDC or something on Sunday morning. The point is where the songs come from. The point is that there's a diversity in culture. He takes a very Jewish term and he compares it and sets it aside a very uh, Greek term. And if you remember this temple that we've been talking about this morning, Paul explicitly says here the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down and they've gathered together. And so by using just these two words, Paul emphasizes that our music should diversely reflect the diversity of the body of Christ in styles, in the way we go about writing lyrics, in who writes the songs, okay? And then he adds on the end spiritual songs, and that makes a whole lot of sense, right? If, if we're participating in what the Spirit is doing, then spiritual songs are appropriate. And what does he mean? To be honest, I don't really know. And as far as I can tell, there's no commentator that has anything best, best, better than a hot take, okay? But it does kind of round off the idea here. And I come from a movement that understands it this way. A spiritual song are songs that the Spirit gives, sometimes extemporaneously, but a lot of times just through prayerfully desiring to worship God with your mouth and asking him to give you a song. And I'm fine with that category. Again, I don't think Paul is trying to be exhaustive here, but what I want to emphasize here is that there's a variety here a variety of origin, a variety of style, um, uh, that there's psalms, which are scripture, there's hymns, which are written by men, and then there's spiritual songs. Maybe God wants to give the gift of a song. I'm fine with all of those things. His point here in listing all of them, though, is that we sing them to one another, that through this we edify we build up, we strengthen, we encourage, we support, we comfort, we stabilize one another. Okay? And then he also adds singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And I don't think that's lost language either. Okay? I appreciate making melody. I think melody is an essential part of music, and when it's not there, worship is difficult. Okay? But what I want to draw your attention to is with your heart. Okay. What he's talking about here is edifying music. But what does it take for music to be edifying? It has to be heart-filled. You have to actually enter into it and engage with it. Okay. You have to sing with your heart and not just with your mouth. Right? Would that be grammatically implied by what Paul is saying here? I think so. Okay. And so the... The idea here, again, is if we sing to one another, I know you're going to have days when your heart's not in it. And you are never going to hear me from this stage exhort you to fake it till you feel it. But that doesn't mean that you can't bring your heart into it. Not by faking it, but just by being honest before the Lord. By taking by faith that the things that we're singing today are true, but right now I don't feel like they're true. And I'm going to sing them because I know them to be true, but I don't feel them. Help me to feel them. That's fine. 
But I do want you to recognize that this is a part of the formula. That this can't be accomplished by just asking Siri to sing our worship set. Right? It's not the songs. It's not the truths in the songs. It's the truths in the songs as proclaimed by the people of God who know them to be true. There's something here, okay? There's something valuable. And I will tell you honestly and, and as a straight encouragement, I really don't remember participating in a church that sung as well as ours does. You know, and, and maybe this is because when we remodeled this building, we had no lights and we had no sound and I was leading worship. <laughs> but either way, keep it up. Recognize that the singing we do together has value. That the Spirit is not just in it, but through it, he is making the temple. And then look at the next one. The next one here is giving thanks, verse 20, always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that giving thanks is on this list isn't surprising. To quote one of the Psalms, speaking of going to the temple for worship, he says, I will enter the gates of the temple with thanksgiving in my heart. I will go into his courts with praise. Praise and thanksgiving are, um, you know, the, the, uh, the peanut butter and jelly of the temple. They go together. But remember here, I'm suggesting to you here that giving thanks is not something that happens because you're full of the Spirit. Giving thanks is a way that you join the Spirit in building up the church. So why would giving thanks build up the church? Okay, first off, maybe you've had the opportunity around Thanksgiving to attend a Thanksgiving service where people just stood up and shared what they were thankful for. I've been to a lot of them and they always work the same way. It begins with awkward silence and one or two brave souls who step up and have something to say. But pretty soon there's a line behind the microphone. Pretty soon we actually just have to shut things down and, and not keep going, why? Because there's, there's a feedback loop that happens with gratitude. And when people share what they're thankful for, you start to realize your own gratitude. And you also desire to share it, okay? But there may be even more going on here. Um, again, grammar, when he says here, thing, uh, giving thanks for everything, the word there can either be masculine in its tense or neuter. Okay? The, they look the same. The, the endings on the words are the same, whether it's masculine or neuter. If this word is neuter, then it's everything. If it's masculine, then it's everyone. And I would suggest to you that if we see it that way, then suddenly there's a consistency to Paul's points. It becomes very easy to sum up. Participate with what the Spirit is doing by singing to one another, by giving thanks for one another, and by submitting to one another. Now, whether I'm white or wrong doesn't remove the big picture point that I'm trying to make, but it would make sense because what does Paul do every time he greets a church in the New Testament? I give thanks for you. He doesn't just say, let me tell you the things that I'm thankful for and list them off. He gives thanks for the church that he's writing to. Now, why is that important in building the church? I would suggest to you that one of the reasons it's important is because every person who makes up the body of Christ is essential to the body of Christ, has worth, value, something to bring to the table, has 1 Corinthians 12 been uniquely gifted for the edification of the whole body. In fact, in that same chapter, Paul says, if you think of the church as a body and each of us as members in it, there's not one, he says, that you can go to and say, I don't need you. No one is the appendix of the body of Christ, that mysterious organ that we don't know what it does and usually just causes problems, so we remove it, okay? And so the idea here is to be a community that is grateful for the community, not just as a whole, but each and indiv every individual member of it. And let's be honest, because the Bible is honest. Life together is not always easy. We are different, sometimes culturally, a lot of times in personality. 
We get under one another's skin. We, we don't have a lot in common. We can say all of those things, and Paul would agree. In Ephesians 4, he gives you this command. Bear with one another in love. Put up with one another, lovingly. Okay? There is something about each and every one of us that just plain needs to be tolerated for the sake of community. Okay? The Bible's honest about that. But there is a value in learning to give thanks for one another. There's a value in processing and understanding the value of one another. Of what Paul says in chapter 1, understanding your glorious inheritance in the saints. God has given you a gift called the church. And the appropriate response to a gift of God is gratefulness, gratitude, the giving of thanks. And so here, it's not hard to realize It's not hard to recognize how that might participate in this building project. Let me just give you one illustration. When you face difficulty in the Christian life, you come from a culture that has two solutions, okay, as modern Americans. One, figure it out. You are all you need. You just just need to figure it out. You need to work a little harder. You need to try again. Whatever it is, right, it's it's Hamilton. I'm, this is my problem. I'm going to solve it. That's, that, those are our models. Or you turn to the experts. Right? We're a technocratic society. We believe in the advice of experts, and so we say, I have this problem, therefore I need this professional solution. Giving thanks like this says that you turn to the body, that you recognize that there are people around you who are uniquely gifted, and Paul is hardcore about this. He says, hey, if you're having a problem with another brother or sister in the church and you want to take it to the courts, he says, don't take it to the courts. Isn't there anyone in the church who's smart enough to resolve a dispute between two parties? He says, ask where the wisdom is. If you've got people who seem to be good mothers and fathers and you're struggling with your parenting, go to them. That's part of what we mean here by giving thanks. It's recognizing the value because when you recognize it, you utilize it. And that's how the temple's supposed to work. That's how the body's supposed to work, in interdependence. Okay. If you're a hand and you go, you know what, I'm really not hearing right now, there's ears for that. That's the idea. And so giving thanks is part of it. Now, These first two, the songs we sing and the giving thanks, that really draws our attention to what we're doing right here, right now. These are things that happen mostly when we gather on Sundays. These are a place where the body comes together for purpose, but when it gets to verse 21 and says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, do you see how that kicks us out of the sanctuary? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's not something that we regularly practice or consistently observe on Sunday mornings. In fact, I told you that Paul's sentence doesn't stop there. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay. Now, go ahead, take a deep breath. It's okay. But the word there for submit is not there. It's not in the Greek. And before you get all excited... It's not necessary to be there because it was already in verse 21. Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then he says, for example, wives to their husbands. And he doesn't stop there. He also says, also children to their parents, and even slaves to their masters. Okay? What follows, and we won't return here till the fall after, I, after my sabbatical, but what follows is all just an extrapolation or an explanation or an illustration of this last sentence here. Submitting, okay? So where does that happen? Where does husbands and wives happen? At home. Where does masters and slaves happen? At work. And we find these household codes where Paul just, or Peter, walks through the relationships we have in our everyday life and talks about how to behave in them. We have them in a couple of places in the New Testament. This one is unique because everyone Paul talks to, husband or wife, master or slave, parent or child, everyone he talks to are assumed to be Christians worshiping in the same congregation. 
Peter says, hey, here's how you need to treat your unbelieving husband. Here's how you need to uh, submit to your evil government. That matters. But here, the assumption is that these are one another's. The assumption is that these people are sitting next together, together in church. Okay. Now, why does Paul talk about this? What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? What does this have to do with the body of Christ? What does it have to do with the building of the temple? Here's what I would suggest to you. Two things. First, the temple that God's building, he uses reclaimed materials for. So here's what God didn't do. He didn't say, I'm starting a church, and that means that government is canceled. Family, over. Marriage, undone. Instead, he says, I'm going to draw this into the church, and I'm going to bring this into the church. He doesn't reject it. He does transform it, and we'll come back to that in a second. But let me give you another on-ramp if that one wasn't helpful. Okay. Here's another way to think about this. Do you remember what the big picture was in Ephesians chapter 1 for what God's doing? He's bringing all things united under one head in Jesus Christ. In other words, part of this whole thing that God is doing provides a new org chart for everything. And at the top of every one is King Jesus. Okay? That's how God is going to redeem all of these institutions that are in the world for better or for worse. He creates a new org chart. And if you were to read through, and I'd encourage you to do this, wives and husbands, you will see that it comes with a realignment of agenda and a realignment of organization. Just a few examples. Okay? Um, with parents, it says, parents, train up your children in the Lord. Okay? Who's now the head of the household? Jesus. He sets the agenda. And the parents then are subordinates carrying out his will on his mission. Okay? In the same way, Paul tells masters to remember that they are servants of the same master as their slaves. Okay? Do you see how that reorganizes things, how it changes things? This is the idea here, okay? And so take those two images and put them together. God is reclaiming all of these institutions to bring them under Jesus Christ. And one of the ways he does that is in the church, which is different because you're all on the same mission, heading in the same direction, serving the same Lord and Savior, okay? And so it's transformative. It changes. He reminds those in power that their power is not ultimate, and so every husband out there is the bride of Christ and has a husband. And every parent out there is also the child of God. And every master out there is a servant of Christ. Okay? This is what it's talking about. But why does that matter? It's because, again, God is building a temple here and now. And as much as this is a part of it, our Sunday morning gathering, and as much as we're grateful for a building that's big enough and warm enough and has amplifications and lights so that we can do this well, the temple is bigger than this. It flows into every aspect of your life. And we don't have time for this. We'll return to it in the fall, but just notice something. Paul doesn't even take a breath before he says, be subject to one another. He's not worried about it. Think of it this way. When you build a temple, when you build a building, there's order. There's structure. And it's baked into it. It's built into it. It's necessary. That doesn't mean that it's justified in all of its forms. But let me remind you that when Jesus returns and the world is as it should be, we will not be a democratic society where everybody gets a vote. We will be a benevolent dictatorship. And the only reason that's good news is because that benevolent dictator's name is Jesus. But it's still good news. Okay? And marriages that are ruled by Jesus, even though they have order, are good news. And workplaces that are ruled by Jesus, even though they have problems, are good news. Okay? 
and parents who are seeking to serve Jesus Christ by training you, you up in, the, in their way are not perfect. Again, Jesus himself says that. If your parents being evil, that's a sentence out of Jesus' mouth. He assumes the issues in your family. But if they get lockstep with Jesus, it's good news, okay? And more importantly, it's edifying. It's building. It's strengthening. It does what the Spirit is interested in doing, okay? Now, when we put this together, again, on big picture, here's what I'm suggesting. Yes, we need to walk in love. Yes, we need to walk as light, which means living out a different life. We also, like we talked about, need to walk in wisdom. You need to grow in your ability to discern the right plan of action from a variety of good options. But here, you also need to walk with the Spirit. And that means leaning into what the Spirit is doing. And let's bring this full circle. What was the contrast again? Be filled with the Spirit was contrasted with be drunk, which is dissipation, which is a waste, which is debauchery. Effectively, what Paul is calling us here is to productive lives. Okay. He's saying that to lean into the one another's, worshiping together, learning how to value and give thanks for one another, learning how to do things in the ways of Jesus, in the order that already exists in our congregation, in all the dual relationships we have, is productive. When Notre Dame was built, not the school, not the football team, the chapel in Paris, it took, if I remember right, 130 years. Wild. 130 years, which means that there were men who worked on that project their whole lives and never saw it completed. In fact, presumably it means there were men who worked on that project not being there when it started and not seeing the end of it. But if you've been to Paris, you've seen it. And not one of those men's lives was a waste. What they had to show for it was this amazing architectural feat. The Spirit has been working for 2,000 years to build this temple. And until the Lord returns, he'll continue that work. And all Paul's trying to get you to realize right now is to do those things as simple and as small as they are, to come together and to sing, to give thanks in front of and with and for one another, to bring a Jesus-like order, a transformative order into the dual relationships in your life. And so if you are brothers and sisters in Christ and also brothers and sisters in blood, right? Those types of things, it's part of this building, this temple. And Revelation tells us that there's a day when the new Jerusalem is going to be revealed from heaven and all of the work will be shown for what it is. It's not a waste. It's not a waste. Let's pray.